The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, I'm going to tell you about a little experiment. You know I love to tell you about experiments, right? <laughs> so this was one that took place back in 2001, and there were 54 undergrads, and this was at the University of Bordeaux. So they were studying wine tasting and wine making, and, and they were training to be experts on, and kind of naturally interested in the subject of wine. And so during this specific study, there was a researcher that was asking students to describe one glass of white wine and one glass of red wine, and these were both just sitting right in front of them. But of course, there's a trick here. So they didn't know that the glass of red was actually just a glass of white wine with a little bit of food coloring in it. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like I can already guess how this ends. Like, none of them knew it was white wine they were drinking, right? And it, uh, it kind of reminds me of that commercial from Pizza Hut where they served this pasta in Italy and they tried to rebrand themselves as Pasta Hut and no one knew it was from Pizza Hut. Oh, man, that was so tricky. And I'm sure those studies were equally scientific. But, but you're right. Like, not one of the 54 kids could tell the white wine was white. And, and as they were writing down their notes, they were looking for the features that you would typically find in reds and even convincing themselves that they were tasting those notes in the drink. Now, honestly, normally I don't like these kinds of studies because I don't love people feeling like they've been tricked, and mm-hmm. especially with things like art or wine, where they're already feeling intimidated by the whole thing. And I feel like everybody should get to enjoy those things without worry. But today's show is all about wine crimes, you know, the forgeries and frauds in the wine world. And it is a fascinating world. And the thing that's so interesting to me about these cons is that the people really, really want to believe they're drinking or buying the good stuff. Even when it's really smart people drinking a very obvious white wine and drops of food coloring are just placed in it. And that's what today's show is all about. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. 
And on the other side of the soundproof glass, decanting a bottle of, what is that? It's oh, Bartles and Bartles James. And James. <laughs> Man, the Wild Island Wine Spritzer. And I, I think he ordered it on eBay, he was saying. Uh-huh. Well, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I am pretty sure that's just a bottle of grape soda that he put a Bartles and James label on. And uh, we know your tricks, Tristan. So You can't fool us, Tristan. <laughs> but today's episode is obviously about wine and wine crimes, but... Did you know that grape juice is actually a man-made invention? So I didn't. Gabe actually pointed this out to me, but just think about it. Like, if the juice from a bunch of grapes was to somehow pool in the wild, it would start to ferment on its own. So in order to make grape juice, we actually have to halt the natural fermentation process to stop it from being alcoholic. So there's no such thing as all-natural grape juice, no matter what the labels tell you. You know, I'd actually never thought about that. And that is a pretty benign case of of mislabeling. But there's so many other interesting stories of, you know, many more nefarious examples, including one of history's first wine crimes. And I know you were doing some digging into this. So do you want to give us the scoop? Yeah, definitely. I can do that. So uh, wine itself is something that's been around pretty much forever. I mean, you can go back as far as 7000 BCE. And the Chinese were actually making wine from fermented honey and rice and fruit. By 1500 BC, the Phoenicians were getting in the act. They were producing and trading their own versions throughout uh, the Mediterranean. And for as long as humans have been making wine, there have also been those who've been manipulating or counterfeiting it for their own gain. And you can actually see this in ancient Rome. So the Romans complained about phony wine flowing through their country. And in fact, Pliny the Elder once wrote about the problem saying, quote, not even our nobility ever enjoys wines that are genuine. So wine forgeries have been this widespread problem from the start, which you know, must have been really disheartening for Pliny the Elder. So so why do you say that? Well, he was also the Roman scholar who coined the famous phrase in vino veritas, or in wine there is truth. So he probably didn't appreciate people meddling with the wine or his aphorism. I like the fact that I think we've quoted Pliny the Elder maybe three times on this show before. <laughs> we get real Pliny here. <laughs> we we love Pliny, or at least quoting Pliny. But uh, all right, so so fake wine was definitely flowing through Rome. but. But how exactly did the scam work? So basically, counterfeiters would sometimes claim a wine was made from a certain kind of grape or even produced in a specific region that it really wasn't. So, for example, like the most popular wine in ancient Rome was Falerian wine, which was made from grapes grown on the slopes of this mountain. And this wine was somewhat rare and pretty expensive. But before long, there were all these local bars serving up a never-ending supply of it at super cheap prices. And while plenty of people couldn't tell the difference— there were these people with more discerning palates, like Pliny, who caught on pretty quickly. So I'm guessing, though, that that wouldn't exactly stop the counterfeiters, though. No, it didn't. I mean, wine forgeries only became more common as time went on, which really prompted governments to crack down on the crimes. So in London during the Middle Ages, you actually see tavern owners had to store their French, Spanish, and German wines in separate containers in separate areas. So it would be harder for them to mix the wines or even to lie about where a certain wine came from. And if a barkeep was caught serving fraud wine, like the punishment was that they had to drink every single drop of it themselves. Oh, what a harsh punishment. <laughs> I mean, I guess if it was fake wine, it probably didn't taste great. But that that really doesn't seem like that bad of a punishment. Yeah, I mean, I guess some of the wine could have been off or whatever. But uh, Germany actually had a much harsher policy. Wine counterfeiters there could be branded or even hanged. And it depended on how much fraudulent wine they were selling and who they'd been selling it to. 
All right, so let me get this straight. So in, in one country, you could be looking at a punishment of having to drink some pretty bad wine, and then another country, you might actually be hanged for the crime. <laughs> I, mean, that, that, I mean, it was a lot of bad wine. But, yes. I guess so. It must have been really bad. So, All right, so, so then if we're talking about multiple places, this kind of fraud was rampant all across Europe or what? It definitely was. And during the 18th and 19th centuries, there was even this group of so-called wine doctors who started producing their own makeshift wines from chemicals and all sorts of random fruits like apples or even raisins. And then they tried to pass the stuff off as this really prestigious wine from faraway regions. And this actually became such a huge problem that European governments started cracking down on it. So, you know, the British Parliament took a stab at it. They passed this Adulteration of Food and Drink Act in 1860. All right, so did this just put a complete stop to the whole wine fraud business or what? Not at all. I mean, the added scrutiny and growing awareness of wide fraud mostly just got criminals to think more creatively about the whole business. I did read about this amazing American wine scam that grape growers started during Prohibition, and it was actually pretty clever. So at the time, the Volstead Act made it so that, you know, that grapes could only be grown if they were to be used for non-alcoholic consumption, like, you know, eaten on their own or made into grape juice or I guess, you know, non-alcoholic wine. And so this left American grape growers with two pretty bad options. They could either like rip out all their grapevines and plant a different crop or try to sell the grapes some other way. And then just, you know, kind of hope that there would be a constitutional amendment that would come along later. And so now some owners chose the first, of course, and that was the much safer option. And they immediately started replacing their grapevines with orchards. But you have these other former winemakers who decided to try, you know, the, the second option and Ultimately, that's what actually saved the entire California wine industry. I mean, that's pretty fascinating. But was grape juice that popular? Like, how are they still doing good business during this time? No, I mean, grape juice was not that popular. And so basically, <laughs> the grape growers, they, would, they, they found a loophole, actually. It was perfectly legal to produce you know, so-called non-alcoholic wine that could theoretically be turned into real wine by the consumers. So the only catch was they had to make it clear that fermenting the wine would be illegal. So with this in mind, the vineyards started selling these, quote, wine bricks. And, and they were basically just these big chunks of grape concentrate that came bundled with a packet of yeast. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's like the blue apron of wine. Or HelloFresh, who sponsored the show. So we're going to go with that. <laughs> that's right. The bricks also came with a warning label that warned consumers against, you know, combining the concentrate and yeast with water and and sugar in a sealed pot, and then and then letting that pot sit in a cooled cupboard for 21 days straight. And so it, it warned them they should definitely not do that, or else they'd you know wind up with an alcoholic beverage. Even if it was a delicious alcoholic <laughs> beverage, they should definitely not do this. It feels like very specific instructions on what not to do. <laughs> yeah, it's so subtle, right? But it, I mean, it actually worked incredibly well for the grape growers and kept them afloat during America's failed attempt at sobriety. And so wine concentrates like this had actually been sold pre-prohibition for a little less than $10 a ton. But just four years into prohibition, the price had increased by nearly 4,000%, and they were selling for almost $400 a ton. And so it was this rise in profits that attracted new grape growers to Napa Valley, and among them was Cesar Mondavi. You know, that name obviously sounds familiar to many people, and he was this Minnesota grocer who began his family's wine dynasty actually during the heart of the Prohibition era. That's amazing. And I, I actually love how the story really makes you root for winemakers because that's not something that happens too often with wine crimes. Right. I mean, especially nowadays where most wine fraud tends to be perpetrated among these high-end wine collectors. And so, 
it is a little tough to drum up sympathy when it's just like millionaires ripping off other millionaires. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. So talking of wine frauds, uh, did you hear about those counterfeit wines that supposedly belonged to Thomas Jefferson that went up for auction at Christie's in the 1980s? I don't think so. So one of the bottles, which was a, a 1787 Chateau Lafitte Bordeaux, was sold to Chris and Malcolm Forbes for $156,000. And this is actually the most that a single bottle of wine had ever been sold for at the time. So we're talking about the Forbes family, like Forbes magazine and, and all of that empire, right? Mm-hmm. And, and for years, this phony bottle of wine was actually the pride of the Forbes collection. Apparently, when Malcolm Forbes learned that he'd won the bid, he said, and this is a direct quote, it's more fun than the opera glasses Lincoln was holding when he was shot. And I have those too. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right. that's just such an insane statement. And I, I guess when you're that rich, you're just looking for ways to spend your money. But the craziest thing is that the Forbes family didn't find out that they'd been scammed until two decades after the fact. You know, to your earlier point, it, it is a little bit difficult to drum up sympathy when people are saying stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, I, I'm curious, so why did it take these two decades to figure out they'd been scammed? Partly it's because the story is just so believable. So Thomas Jefferson was famous for his love of fine food and wine, which he'd grown accustomed to during his time in Europe. And in fact, during his time in the White House, Jefferson actually spent over $16,000, which is about $300,000 in today's money, on wine, amassing a private collection of more than 20,000 bottles. So, oh, wow. I mean, all that kind of sets the stage, right? Like, then you've got Forbes, who hears the story of a well-known German wine enthusiast who supposedly, like, found uh, Jefferson's wine hidden behind a brick wall in Paris. And there was little reason to doubt him. I mean, the bottles even had the right dates and the initials THJ on them, and they were etched into the bottles, so it all seemed real. Yeah, that makes sense, but, but how did the Forbes family figure out they'd been duped? Well, the truth actually came out thanks to the efforts of a different billionaire wine collector. So basically, the German forger, this guy named uh, Hardy Rodenstock, he just wasn't content with selling one bottle that he discovered behind a wall. He also found four more bottles, which he sold for half a million dollars to William Koch. And you probably recognize that name. He's the lesser known but still super wealthy Koch brother who isn't as tangled up in politics. And for a long time, Koch also believed his bottles were legitimate. But that changed in 2005 when the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston was preparing to exhibit his wine collection to the public. And basically, the museum contacted the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello. But none of the historians could actually verify that the bottles belonged to Jefferson. In fact, all of the evidence that they had on hand pointed to the contrary. So what, what kind of evidence are we talking about? Well, Jefferson actually kept meticulous records on everything, you know, Jefferson being Jefferson. And mm -hmm. this included all the wines he'd ever bought while in France. And according to one of Monticello's senior historians, and here I'm just going to quote the note he wrote, in his vast records of over 60,000 documents, there was nothing that suggested Jefferson had ever ordered any of these wines. In the so-called Jefferson bottles, there were about a dozen bottles, including 1784 and a 1787 Chateau de Chem, a 1787 Lafitte, a Margot. Most of them were 1787, a vintage Jefferson never ordered in his life. Wow. So, I mean, that is pretty compelling evidence, but meticulous or not, I mean, there's always the chance that Jefferson made a mistake in his records, right? Yeah, that's true, which is why Bill Koch actually leaned on a private investigator and a former FBI agent, this guy named Jim Elroy, to get to the bottom of things. All right. Well, I definitely want to hear how all this panned out, but before you clue us in, let's take a quick break. L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? 
Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the most famous wine crimes in history. All right, Mango, so what happened with Elroy's investigation? I'm assuming he found a way to prove that the Jefferson wine was fake, right? So he did, but it was not easy. So at at first, he started looking for ways to prove that the wine itself didn't really date back to the 18th century. And the tricky part is finding a way to do it without opening the bottles, right? Like, you know, just in case his hunch was wrong, you don't want to mess up these wonderful bottles of wine. So. This is kind of amazing, but Elroy found his solution in the research of this French physicist named Philippe Hubert. And Hubert had found a way to use low-level gamma ray detection to date wine without actually having to remove it from the bottle. Wait, so how, how does that work? Basically, you try to determine if the wine contains any traces of cesium-137. And this is a radioactive isotope that doesn't occur in nature. So prior to the atomic age, this isotope just straight up didn't exist on Earth. But after the use of nuclear bombs, it was literally everywhere, including like the atmosphere, the rain, soil, grapes, and eventually in wine. All right. So so this test can't determine exactly when a wine was bottled, but it, it can at least tell you if the bottle was before or after what, like the, the mid-40s or so? Exactly, which would have been enough for Elroy. Like if the bottles contained cesium-137, then they couldn't have been bottled in the 18th century. But Hubert's test actually came back negative, which proved the wine had been bottled prior to the atomic age, though not necessarily as far back as Jefferson. Oh, wow. So that's a pretty good curveball. So, so Elroy then had to come up with a plan B. So, so what did he do? Yeah, Elroy went back to the drawing board and he started assembling this crack team of wine fraud experts, including a retired Scotland Yard inspector, uh, a former MI5 agent, and even a master glass engraver. And since efforts to uncover fraud in the wine itself had failed, the team turned their attention to the other way to counterfeit wine, which is just by messing with the bottle. And this is where the expert engraver comes in, because the team was actually able to prove that the etched initials on the bottle had been done with an electric dentist drill, which, of course, was not a thing in the 18th century. Wow. I mean, like, it's so crazy that that was the deciding factor. I mean, I'm kind of guessing they wish they'd looked closer at the bottle before they started doing all those cesium tests. (laughs) I mean, as interesting as that is. 
Because I'm guessing these physicists don't come cheap for that kind of investigation. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even get into the detail there because that part wasn't easy either. Like, Elroy had personally flown to the French-Italian border and he delivered the bottles in a bulletproof case. And and then Hubert carried out the experiment a mile underground. And this was to prevent interference from atmospheric gamma rays. Like, it was just way more complicated than taking a closer look at the glass. But... In the end, Elroy was able to prove the bottles were fraudulent, and in 2006, Bill Koch filed a lawsuit against Hardy Rodenstock in New York. You know, the timing of all of this is also super interesting because it was around this same time, you know, you'd be looking at the opposite side of the country, that probably the most notorious wine counterfeiter to date was just starting to come into his own. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing you're talking about Rudy, right? Yeah, so this is uh, Rudy Carnia one. And, and for those who aren't familiar with his story, Rudy was this mysterious young wine collector who made a name for himself in the L.A. wine scene. And this was in the early 2000s. And I say mysterious because he sort of came out of nowhere and nobody really knew much about him at the time. Now, this should have raised some suspicions in this upper crust and the wine circles there that he managed to infiltrate. But, you know, most of his new friends chose to ignore the mystery just on account of his deep pockets. He would often pay the bill at these lavish dinners and wine tastings, you know, for all the other enthusiasts that were there. And he seemed to have this knack for tracking down these hard-to-come-by vintages and and to get them at these uncommonly good prices. Of course. Now, again, these folks should have been suspicious of Rudy, but they weren't. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of like that guy who made the room. Like, nobody knew where he was from or how he got his money. But, hey, he's generous and fun to be around. So why rock the boat with any questions? Yeah, I mean, that seems to be what was going on, and it was really all about the wine for the people that he ran with. You know, for instance, one of the groups Rudy frequented was called Angry Men, and they called themselves that because of how mad they would get whenever they took a nice bottle of wine to a party, only to find out that everyone else had brought the cheap stuff. (laughs) You know, so at these Angry Men dinners, all the guests would bring these really fancy and expensive bottles of wine, and Everyone would just get sloshed and they would drink as much as like $200,000 worth of wine in a single evening. $200,000. That's insane. Yeah, I, I haven't drunk that much in one night ever. Since actually, college. To be honest with you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Dropping those big bills. But, you know, it, it wasn't long before Rudy got into the auction scene and, and sort of became the go-to guy for rare Burgundy. And he was buying and selling some of the finest wines of the 20th century and making bank in the process. And his biggest payday came in 2006 when he sold almost $25 million worth of wine in a single auction. Now, the previous sales record had been something like $15 million. So we're talking a huge gain on that. But the writing was already on the wall. So a year or two later, a bunch of bottles of this rare Burgundy from the Domaine Ponson wine house, they began to appear with vintages dating between 1945 and 1971. And the head of this winery, Laurent Ponson, found this to be exceptionally odd because his family hadn't started making this particular red wine until 1982. So knowing something was up, he launched his own international investigation into Rudy's shady dealings. Now, he did this mostly as a way to defend the good name of Burgundy, as he later told a reporter, the fakes were like a piece of dirt on the name of Burgundy, and I wanted to wash it off. <laughs> I mean, that's funny growing from like a wine growing region, like the idea of dirt on it doesn't seem that bad. But I love <laughs> his intensity and, and his love for Burgundy. I mean, his family name was on the line, too. But around the same time Ponceau was conducting his investigation, you, you look across the pond, you've got Bill Koch, who was launching another one of his own. So he'd been burned so badly on his Jefferson bottles that Koch started scouring his collection for other potential fakes, and 
he actually found dozens. I mean, many of which had come directly or at least indirectly from Rudy. Meanwhile, more and more suspicious bottles were popping up at auctions, and this was drawing the attention of the FBI as well. So I, I'd actually read about the raid on Rudy's condo back in 2012, and his whole place was decked out like this makeshift factory. They found uh, bottles of wine just soaking in the kitchen sink so the labels could be easily removed. And, and there were all these like corking tools and thousands and thousands of fake wine labels that he'd forged from this enormous laser printer. And, you know, of course, they were all for really prestigious wines from Burgundy and Bordeaux. Yeah, that's right. And maybe most damning of all, the FBI found all these intricate tasting notes that Rudy had assembled. So apparently he'd been taking cheaper wines, mixing them together, and then, you know, putting them in these more expensive bottles. Sometimes also altering the bottles to make them seem more valuable as well. I mean, the worst part for him was that in a lot of cases, Rudy's formulas were written out for the different wines that he planned to counterfeit. So basically he was making these imitations of rare wines that he had tasted once before. But he wasn't exactly a hack. Like, he was really exacting about how to best approximate the taste of each one so that it actually matched the label. Huh. I mean, that's really interesting because I, I've heard that with rare old wines like this, most people are pretty clueless about the taste. And sometimes you're dealing with wine from 100 years ago, so nobody knows what it's supposed to taste like. And they probably paid so much for it anyway that they aren't in any sort of hurry to open it. Yeah, I mean, the care he showed was really unusual, and especially considering how unlikely it was that collectors would ever even open these bottles. Hmm. But in the end, Rudy's extensive notes and this condo full of equipment really shed some light on his overall plan. So by bidding high for wines at auction, Rudy had driven up the market values, and, and that really paved the way for higher returns when he later released all these counterfeit bottles back into circulation. All told, Rudy had flooded the market with an estimated 15,000 bottles of counterfeit wine over the course of about a decade or so. Wow. And so despite the fact that he was artfully blending these drinks, the FBI had to take him down and take him down hard. So two years after the raid, Rudy was sentenced to 10 years in prison, which made him the first person in the U.S. to ever be convicted of wine fraud. I mean, that itself is crazy, right? I mean, the first person to ever be convicted of a wine fraud? So I, I know there's a little bit left to say about uh, Rudy Kurniawan's case, and I thought it might be fun to talk about some of the more telltale signs of wine fraud. But before we get into any of that, let's take another break. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, where we're talking wine frauds. Okay, so, so well, I do want to make sure we don't overlook an important detail that you mentioned about Rudy's case, which is that he produced an absolutely insane amount of fake wine, especially for a one-man operation. And I, I want to say you said it was like 15,000 bottles that he manufactured? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a tremendous number. And that high volume is actually something that his supporters have pointed to as evidence that he couldn't have done what he did. And there's actually a fair amount of evidence that suggests Rudy wasn't acting alone. You know, for instance, according to investigators, Rudy had these two uncles who were supposedly notorious Indonesian bank robbers. (laughs) Really? That's amazing. Yeah, the story just gets better and better as you (laughs) dig deeper into it. And they were pretty good at their work, too. So they're responsible for about $800 million in stolen funds, most of which has never been recovered. There's also a paper trail that shows Rudy wired tens of millions of dollars to his brothers in Hong Kong and Indonesia during the height of his scheme. Well, I mean, that would certainly explain where his money was coming from, as well as who might have been helping with his operation. But still, you've got to think, if his uncles are such well-known criminals, you'd think that the FBI would have taken an interest much sooner. I mean, why did it take PIs to figure this stuff out? I mean, I'd wondered about that, too. And it turns out that a big reason why his family's criminal connections went unnoticed for so long was that Rudy was using a fake name the whole time. According to one of Bill Koch's investigators, Rudy Kurniawan is just a made-up name from two famous Indonesian badminton players. How great is that? (laughs) Yeah, I thought it sounded familiar. It's just everyone knows badminton players. That's right. I mean, it's so random, it's actually kind of awesome. But I'm curious, whatever happened to Rudy's 15,000 fakes? Like, are, are they still floating around on the market? Well, a lot of them definitely are. I think only about a third of Rudy's wines had been accounted for at last count. And most of those have since been destroyed at landfill sites. And and all of this is done under the supervision of U.S. Marshals. And it's actually kind of a bummer when you think about how selective Rudy was about his blending. Yeah. I mean, the bottles definitely weren't worth what he was charging. But this wasn't stuff you'd find on the average store shelf either. I know. As you were describing the process, like it made me want to taste some of these wines. It, It is such a shame. Still, a a lot of good has come out of these two big cases we've been talking about because obviously Rodenstock was kind of the precursor and then you've got Kurniawan and both of those methods taught fraud investigators so many tricks for how to tell an authentic bottle from a fake. And obviously it's no coincidence that Bill Koch was one of the pivotal figures in bringing this down because, you know, he really understood that the key to authentication was paying attention to the wine packaging and not to the wine itself. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I was actually reading up on some of the more tech-based solutions out there, and most of them have lower success rates than simply looking for discrepancies in the labels or the bottles. You know, for example, there's this device that came out a few years ago called the Corvin system. And it's basically this fancy corkscrew that lets you extract wine from a bottle without having to remove the cork. So you just stick this thin, hollow needle through the cork, and then the wine is pushed into the holes on the side of the needle, and then it carries it through the device, and lastly, it's pumped into your glass. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so so the whole idea was that the auction houses could use this tool as a way to let bidders sample the wine prior to the sale you know, without having to open and, and then devalue the whole bottle. I mean, that's amazing, and it actually sounds amazing in theory, but, you know, like we've already talked about, most people don't know what old wine's supposed to taste like, right? 
Well, yeah, and that's not even the only problem. So according to Maureen Downey, who's one of the world's leading wine authenticators, counterfeiters are already using the Corvin device to remove fine wine from the bottle and then just pump the cheaper stuff in in its place. So (laughs) what was supposed to be like this revolutionary tool for verifying wines is now providing one of the easiest ways to create fake ones. I mean, that's terrible. And it must have been so frustrating for whoever came up with this ingenious solution. But... You know, it it is funny that the tool I've heard is most helpful for detecting counterfeit wine is actually like a super low-tech one, and that's the jeweler's loop, which is the round magnifying device that jewelers use for, I guess, finding imperfections in diamonds and rubies and whatever. But Mm -hmm. with one of those, you can actually spot all kinds of inconsistencies. Like, you can find thumbprints on wax seals that should have been applied by machines or other subtle differences like uh, label colors, like the kind of details that point to inkjet printing over actually, I guess, like old-fashioned ways of making labels. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've even heard about some of the more glaring errors that can be spotted just with the naked eye, as long as you know what you're looking for. Like sometimes counterfeiters get pretty lazy and they wind up misspelling the name of a wine or <laughs> they may release a particular vintage in a larger size bottle than it was ever actually sold in. But Probably my favorite dumb mistake, though, is this counterfeiter who tried to sell this supposedly very old wine, but he ended up putting it into bottles that had a recycling logo on the bottom. (laughs) That's incredible. So, I mean, it really seems that the best way to protect yourself against wine fraud is just to be super knowledgeable about what you're trying to buy, right? Yeah, and I mean, I guess that doesn't seem like too much to ask, given the price labels that we're dealing with and, you know, the kinds of wines that, that get counterfeited. Not to mention how extensive the problem of wine fraud seems to be now. Right. And and nowadays, there's even an option to outsource that attention to detail. And how do you do that? So big name cases like Rudy's have actually shined a spotlight on just how pervasive the problem of wine fraud is. And, you know, Maureen Downey, who you talked about earlier, she actually estimates that the total value of all fake wine on the market is about $3 billion. I mean, that's wow. just unbelievable. And over half a billion of that actually comes from Rudy alone. But other wine industry estimates say that at this point, around 20% of all wine in circulation is counterfeit. So I guess like the need for wine authentication is definitely there. And consultants like Downey have actually been stepping up to meet the challenge in lots of different ways. And one of those is through a website that Downey herself started called winefraud.com. I haven't actually been to the site. So it's just like an online guide for spotting forgeries. Yeah, I mean, it has tutorials of, like, how to recognize fraud, and, and there's also, like, a gallery of legitimate samples of popular wines, so you can actually compare the real things to any potential fakes in their collections. And on the paid version of the site, because there's always a paid version, users can actually team up with experts to get their bottles verified. Well, that does sound pretty handy. And I guess if you're dropping a 1000 bucks or so on a bottle of wine, you might as well pay a little extra to make sure that this thing is legitimate. Yeah, I mean, or you could just switch to beer. But uh, Good call. Good advice. <laughs> but speaking of things to watch out for, I, I, I do think it's time to pop the cork on today's fact off. So let's dive in. So I'm going to kick this off. Did you know that the French sometimes eat rats? And it's a dish occasionally served in Bordeaux. But you only use alcoholic rats who've been hanging out in wine cellars. <laughs> Basically, you brush them with lots of olive oil and shallots. And apparently they're grilled over wine barrels to get even more of that winey flavor. It's supposed to be delicious. I don't know. I think I'd probably need a few glasses of actual wine before trying that. But <laughs> Have you heard about this wine called 19 Crimes? Mm-mm. So it's almost like Pokemon Go meets wine. 
So the 19 crimes refers to the British prisoners who were sent to Australia, and each of them had been accused of one of the 19 crimes of the time. I just read about this recently, but the crimes were things like impersonating an Egyptian and stealing <laughs> letters. And Anyway, you could hold up a wine bottle to your phone, and it tells you the crime stories. So you get some delicious notes of history with each glass, and apparently the gimmick works because sales have been great. That's pretty cool. So there's this 200-mile pilgrimage from Rome to Ortona in Italy called the Camino de San Tommaso. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen this trend recently, but like walking these Camino pilgrimages has, has just seen this huge resurgence. But at the end of the road in Ortona, there's something wonderful waiting for you, a wine fountain. It runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's there specifically for thirsty pilgrims and also, I guess, tourists. But they do ask you to keep it to one glass. And according to townies, quote, it isn't for drunkards or louts. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a super short one. But did you realize there's a specially minimally fermented wine that gets used at mass occasionally? So it's made for priests who are recovering alcoholics. Huh. I, I like that. So I don't think you and I were hip to the four loco trend. But uh, lucky for us, we can still get in on this uh, Buckfast tonic wine. It's Scottish four loco. It's uh, <laughs> it's brewed by monks, and it's apparently 15% alcohol by volume, so, you know, it's going to get you drunk. And drop for drop, it also contains approximately as much caffeine as six cups of coffee. It's basically a recipe for disaster, and, and people have been quick to link it to crimes. Supposedly, it led to over 5,000 petty crimes and fights in a small region of Scotland over two or three years. But the funniest thing I read about it was this review in Thrillist that said, it's the scourge of the drinking class in the UK and the most polarizing thing to come from monks since the bowl cut. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. I do have to admit that any fact off that includes the word Scottish for loco is something that deserves a trophy. So, so Mango, I'm going to give you this one. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it for today's show. If we've forgotten any great facts about wine or wine fraud, we'd love to hear those from you. You can always email us, parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. You can also call our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my! Look at that! He is! And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win! Unbelievable! 
When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 